verses 1 through 11. So if you would stand and I'll read God's word and Aaron will come up here and preach God's word to us. I will say too, I forgot to say, if you're new, we're so glad you're here. Grab one of those connecting cards in the pew back in front of you. Fill that out. There's a slot back there. You can hand it to me. We would love to help you get involved in our church and also in one of our small groups that we call missional communities. Mark 14, verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my head beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Aaron, if you'll come here, I'll pray for you. Father, we're thankful that you have given your word to us. You are not silent. You have spoken. And um, we, we just pray as we open your word today, as, as Aaron opens it up and proclaims it to us, that we would hear your revelation, your, your revelation given by grace in love, that we would hear it and rejoice in it, and we would want to respond. Um, give us hearts to respond, we pray. Give us humility. Um, give us um, just a, a zeal um, for you and, our, and your kingdom and not our own. And, and just give Aaron um, your words, um, your zeal, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, thank you. Um, I'm just now realizing that I don't have a single Halloween or Reformation Day reference in the sermon today. So I'll just start with, you know, a funny tweet I saw yesterday from Ed Stetzer. He said, if you haven't decided yet whether you're going to celebrate Halloween or Reformation Day or how to do that, um, you can just nail 95 Reese's to your front door. <laughs> well, good morning. It's good to be back with you guys. Um, last week, Kevin and I were out of town. We were visiting the Glossons and Coram Deo in Morganton, North Carolina, uh, checking out or checking in on them, uh, spending time with them. It was a great week. Good to see the mountains. Good to eat southern food. Uh, and it's always a blessing to see how God is working in other places and to be encouraged and encourage other leaders. For us here, though, um, let me give you a little bit of a roadmap. So, 
Uh, a couple weeks ago, we finished our sermon series in the book of Galatians, Only Jesus. Uh, next week, we'll start a new sermon series through the Gospel of Matthew, like Kevin just said. Uh, but today, we kind of want to do uh, just a bit of a one-off to, to refocus on, you know, who is Jesus? How should we respond to him? Uh, and then as we jump into Matthew, they'll kind of line up with our Advent season as well. So this is one of my favorite passages in Mark. Um, just gives us a real good picture of um, how amazing, how beautiful Jesus is. So I'm excited to dive in. Um, when I was a kid, probably elementary school age, see some older elementary kids in here, um, I had a magazine subscription. And at the beginning of every month, I would sit in my living room and just gaze longingly at the mailbox to see if the mailman was nestling that glorious, riveting, action-packed issue of Highlights Magazine into my mailbox. And if you've never seen Highlights Magazine, um, it's that magazine that's ripped up and has sticky fingerprints and is in the corner of every dentist's office you've ever been in. And there's a bunch of games and comics and articles and just puzzles and stuff in there. My favorite part was always this short little comic strip I only had two frames. It was called Goofus and Gown. Uh, I uploaded a couple of these little comics to the slideshow just so I could kind of share them with you. Um, but it's about two brothers, Goofus, who is always doing the wrong thing and getting himself into trouble, and then Gown, who behaves you know, like a proper, well-mannered boy should. Every time they're in the same scenario, and every time they do the opposite, Thing. And so here's, here's a few. This first one is, you know, Goofus is upset. You know, I don't want to share my toys. And then Gallon always shares his toys with his friends. The next one, Goofus always likes to read his books with his grimy little hands. Uh, but Gallon, the good boy, knows that he should read books with clean hands. Um, are there any parents with young kids here? I know there are. This next one's for you. Goofus loves to play with his noisiest toys while his mom is trying to nap. But Gallant knows that he needs to respect his mom's time in the afternoon to take a little nap. Because she has to deal with Goofus all day. And then this last one is my favorite. It shows you know, kids how to interact with bearded men. Uh, on the left, Goofus says, why do you wear a beard? Then Gallant, he knows better, he doesn't ask such silly questions. He just plays checkers with the bearded man for some reason. I don't know. That looks like the oldest one of all of them. But hopefully you can see the point from these comics. The child reading these is supposed to look at the characters and imitate Gallon, who makes the right choices. And so often, the Bible presents us stories in the same kind of setup. Think about Cain and Abel. One of the brothers offers the first of their flock in faith. He makes a good sacrifice. And the other murders his brother because his offering was rejected. Think about David and Saul. One is a king like the nations, and the other is a man after God's own heart. Think about Jacob and Esau. Actually, um, they're both goofuses most of the time. But that just displays God's graciousness because he's able to redeem and fulfill his promises even through goofuses. 
Well, we'll see in Mark 14 right here, one character makes a good, godly, God-glorifying choice, while the others make selfish um, choices for personal gain. And this story is also reported in the other Gospels, all four Gospels. So we'll jump around all the whole Gospel multiverse. Um, Luke 7 and John 12 to fill in some more details. So let's walk through the story slowly. And while we do, keep in mind that goofus and gallant comparison idea. Look at who's portrayed positively and what they do versus who's portrayed negatively and what they do. Chronologically, the story that Mark is telling us is about Jesus' ministry and his death. And then at the very end, very short chapter on the resurrection. Um, and the back half is mostly focusing in on Jesus' final week. Let's think about the setting of this story. This passage falls just after Jesus' triumphal entry. So the timeline is Palm Sunday. This story of Jesus' anointing. The Last Supper on Thursday. The crucifixion on Friday. And then the resurrection on Sunday. This falls somewhere on that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of the week. Next is the story's plot. So Jesus is lounging at Simon's house after dinner. Notice the contrast in the first few verses between Jesus and the religious leaders. Verse 1, the religious leaders, they're plotting, they're scheming on how to get their hands on Jesus so they can arrest him, trap him, execute him. And what is Jesus doing at that exact same moment, knowing what's in front of him? He's reclining. Verse 3, so while his enemies plot, Jesus is getting ready for an after-dinner nap. It's almost time for Thanksgiving. Y'all know how that after turkey nap is. This is where Jesus, this is kind of Jesus' setting. And this woman comes in. In Luke 7, it says that she's a sinful woman. In John 12, it says that this is Mary from the siblings Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. She comes in and she has this appointment to pour over Jesus. Close your eyes and imagine you're at this dinner party. Seriously, close your eyes. I want you to imagine you're in the room. Hear the sounds, the smell, the smells. You've just finished eating. Maybe you had some roasted fish, some lentils and olives, and a couple of figs for dessert. You've got a nice cup of wine from the neighbor's vineyard. Uh, and you're chatting with your best buddy, Lazarus, whose funeral you went to last week. And then suddenly, smash! You hear this stone jar breaking and everyone's head turns to the left. You see a woman next to Jesus, but before you can tell what she's doing, you can smell it. The pure nard. It's this sweet, spicy, earthy aroma that's filling the whole room. And this isn't like when you were in high school and uh, some of the dudes wore way too much Axe body spray. Uh, this is high-end perfume. The gospel writers tell us it costs 300 denarii, which is basically a whole year's wages. This stuff had to be imported to Jerusalem all the way from India or Arabia. If you think the supply chains are messed up now. Um, and they didn't have two-day shipping either. But to put that price tag in perspective, 
if you worked a minimum wage job in our city for a whole year without taking a day off, you'd make somewhere around $21,000. That is the smell of high, high quality perfume filling the dining room. Now, according to the different gospel writers, this woman pours the fragrant oil on Jesus' head and his feet. Keep imagining yourself at the dinner party. You start to hear crying. She's praising Jesus and thanking him for everything he's done for her. Then you start to hear something else. Grumbling, sarcasm. People are starting to get anxious. And it's at this point I want us to examine the main characters Mark puts before us. The woman and the men. It's the comparison and contrast of these characters that Mark wants us to take notice of here. And he's really going to mess with our assumptions. So let's use that goofus gallant category from earlier and see exactly what it means to encounter Jesus and truly be changed by it. At the start of the story, who's goofus, who's gallant? We've got all kinds of people at this dinner party. Mary, Martha, Lazarus, Judas, and the other disciples. The host of the party, Simon. Uh, he's a guy who used to have leprosy, but now that he's healed, he's back to being, you know, a regular Pharisee. And 2,000 years later, we know that most of the time the Pharisees are portrayed as the bad guys in the Gospels. But almost everyone in Jesus' day would have thought Simon was a great guy. He tries really hard to follow God's instruction. And, he wanted, and people wanted to live like him. Plus, he invites all these people over for a dinner party. So, he must be a pretty nice guy. And then you have, you know, again, the disciples. Those guys who spend 24-7 with Jesus, learning from him, sometimes serving alongside him. If you open an issue of Highlights Magazine, these guys would totally be gallant. And then you've got the sinful one. In Jesus' culture, that's a double whammy. Right off the bat, she's probably treated with a little bit less respect, not as well as the guys at this party, just because she's a lady. And we also know that she has a bad reputation for some reason or another. She's a sinful woman. Then, she interrupts the end of the dinner party by smashing open this jar of pure nard. That's like Goofus playing his loudest toys while everyone's trying to nap or hang out. But Mark and the other gospel writers don't stop there. And they're going to give us three contrasts that demonstrate, again, it's really about how you've encountered Jesus that shows whether you're a goofus or a gallant of a disciple. So number one, the woman follows Jesus because she loves Jesus. The men follow Jesus because they care about their reputation. At the end of Luke's version of the story, Jesus teaches the, he teaches the group that the person who loves much has been forgiven much, or vice versa, the person who's forgiven much loves much. Imagine this, your friend lets you borrow their car, and while you're out and about the evening, uh, someone opens their door and hits yours. It's, you know, not serious, but there's a, a small but noticeable ding in the car. You bring it back, and your friend says, you know what, I forgive you. 
I won't make you pay to have that fixed. But imagine a different scenario where you've taken your friend's car out, the night starts to go really sideways, and you crash his car. When he finally makes it to the scene, he says, you know what? I forgive you. I won't make you pay to replace that car. I'm glad you're safe. How much more would you love that friend in the second scenario than in the first? Not that you wouldn't love them in the first, but you love them so much more in that second scenario. This is, the, this is what Jesus says about the woman, this kind of scenario. In Luke 7, 47, he says, Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But compare that to the host of the party, Simon. Still in Luke 7, he says this in verse 39. If this Jesus were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. He tries to distance himself from the woman, and then he tries to distance himself from Jesus because he won't distance himself from the woman. Does that sound familiar at all? Um, it's kind of cancel culture, tribal fundamentalism. Those things aren't new. It's not a 21st century problem. Simon is so concerned about maintaining his image more than realizing that the woman needed forgiveness. He doesn't realize that he needed that same forgiveness. And he makes himself into a spiritual goofus. Because he's only throwing the party to be around the crowd feeding, sickness healing Jesus. But Mary loves Jesus for Jesus. Number two, then, second contrast. The woman follows Jesus and gives him everything she has. The guys follow Jesus to get as much as they can out of Jesus. Remember what she gives Jesus, according to Mark. This pure nard. Remember how expensive this oil, perfume, ointment stuff is. It's a whole year's salary. This stuff was so valuable that typically it was only going to be used on special occasions and only in small, small amounts. This perfume may have been given to her as a gift by someone else, maybe a gift to her family. Uh, it could have been an investment to draw on in the future. But she breaks open the whole jar to pour over Jesus. And don't overlook that fact that she broke the jar. This tells us that she has no intention of saving any for herself. To her, there's no cost that's too great to honor Jesus. And not only that, but the other accounts tell us she wipes his feet with her tears and her hair. In that culture, it would have been utterly appalling to have to clean someone's feet. The job of the lowest servant. And then, not to mention on top of that, how scandalous it would have been for a woman to let down her hair like that in front of this dinner party. But she's the ultimate picture of humility and devotion. There's nothing she wouldn't do to honor Jesus. I love this quote uh, that I read from Danny Aiken. He says, The world, and sadly many in the church, will never have a problem with moderate 
measured devotion to Christ. Christians can get a lot of flack in our culture. Sometimes it's deserved, sometimes it's not. Um, but people rarely criticize private faith. The Christian who keeps their Christianity at home. Yet, when you start to follow Jesus and honor him in every part of your life, it's going to confuse and freak people out. You might hear, you know, you just spent all this time in school. What do you mean you're going to take an internship? You've got a great life here, close to your family. What do you mean you're going to plant a church or be a missionary? After all the time you spend with your family and at work, what do you mean you're going to volunteer at church? After finding out who they voted for, what do you mean that you're going to have them over for dinner? After all they've done to you and all the ways that they've hurt you, what do you mean you're just going to forgive them? Following Jesus in every part of life will always raise an eyebrow, at least, and sometimes sharp criticism. But contrast her attitude to Judas's attitude. If you jump over to John 12, we see specifically Judas's response. He chimes in at verse 5. Why was this ointment not sold and given to the poor? John informs us more in verse 6. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And being in charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So Judas is pretending to care more about the poor than Jesus, as if anyone could be convinced Jesus didn't care about the poor. He's pretending to care more about the poor than Jesus, just so he can take a little bit off the top for himself. He's always been more interested in being wealthy, and he used Jesus as an opportunity to make that happen. Remember, at the end of our passage, Judas literally sells out Jesus for 30 silver coins, which that may sound like kind of a random number to us, um, but in Exodus 21, 30 silver coins was the price of a slave who was accidentally killed by an ox. Take a second and let that sink in. That's the value of Jesus in Judas's eyes. Let's examine one final contrast. The woman knows who Jesus really is, but the men are clueless to what he is about. How do the disciples respond to what they've just seen? Um, Sticking back in Mark 14, verse 4. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. So we just talked about Judas and this fake generosity that he had. Um, but I don't know if there's any reason to assume that on the part of the other disciples. They may have genuinely cared and wondered why Jesus was accepting such an extravagant gift when they could have done real ministry with it. Jesus confronts their concern with somewhat of a strange statement in verse 7. It says, For you always have the poor with you, and whatever you want, you can do good for them. What's Jesus saying? He's not saying 
that there are so many poor people in the world, and they're always going to be there. There's no point trying to do anything about that. We need to keep reading and remember, again, that this is all happening in Jesus' final week. Verses 6 and 8 on either side of the statement. Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. She's done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. So even though the disciples have lived through Mark 9 and Mark 10, they heard Jesus tell them that he was the Messiah and that he would die, they still didn't understand. But this woman did. This woman had sat at the feet of Jesus and learned from him. She trusted him and called him Lord, even in the most difficult moments of her life. Even when Jesus' closest disciples didn't, she recognized who Jesus really was, the suffering servant, sent to die for my sins and for your sins. Last year, um, when I started you know, working in the Carter's office, uh, someone asked me, what is it about ministry that you love, and why do you love it? And I told them, uh, at least as far as you know, the, the preaching part of ministry, I love seeing something new about Jesus, and then having the opportunity to share that with the people that I love. Hopefully to see in their eyes that same realization of beauty and glory of Jesus that I saw over the week. And so, yeah, I preached at Corn Day last week in North Carolina. I told them, yeah, we drove all the way here from Columbia, you know, 10 hours, 12 hours, whatever. But if I came here all the way, it doesn't matter if someone came from the Carolinas, Columbia, Colorado, California, um, it doesn't matter how far they drove. If they show up to preach to you a sermon, maybe something like this, how to be the good disciple and don't be the bad disciple, and then just, that was it, do not invite them back. To preach. And if I just stopped here and the lesson was be the good disciple, not the bad disciple, I would hope that maybe you would find Kevin and be like, Aaron needs some more time to learn. Because even though that's where we've been focusing in kind of these contrasts, it's Jesus. And it's always Jesus who the story is about. You see, there are only two kinds of people who get anointed with oil and perfume. People who are about to be buried and the Messiah, which is just a Hebrew word that means chosen, anointed king. Here's why Mark is one of my favorite books. Chronologically, like we said earlier, the story is about Jesus' ministry and his crucifixion. And that's so important. We need to know about his sinless life and his sacrificial death. But the theological, maybe even the artistic message of Mark is that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. Son of God is a similar royal title for God's people, for the King of God's people. 
And Jesus is called Son of God over and over at all the most crucial parts of Mark. His baptism. The sky opens up and God's voice comes out and says, This is my Son. The transfiguration. Again, the voice comes from heaven that says, This is my Son. Listen to him. And then in this crucifixion, the centurion sees it. He recognizes this man was the Son of God. Son of God is like a frame on the masterpiece that Mark is painting for us. From the get-go at his baptism, we know Jesus is the anointed one sent to die and sent to bring God's rule and reign on the earth. In chapters 8 and 10, even though they don't fully understand it, the disciples confess that Jesus is the Messiah who's destined to rule. And he responds that his rule only comes through his death. And in this story we've been going through, Jesus is finally anointed with oil, signifying that he is the one who will die and become king. Mark has shown us the anointing of King Jesus. And I know we can bristle a little bit when we hear that word, the title of king. Kings are quite possibly um, the most un-American thing we can think of. They buck against our sense of self-ownership and self-determination. And it does not help that we live in a world full of dictators. Presidents, pastors, parents, police, spouses, bosses, and others who would take advantage of their power or their position and use the people underneath them for their own gain or their own fame. This is what is so amazing and so beautiful about Jesus. Yes, he's the king over all of creation, but he's a king especially for those who are wounded and hurting, broken and lowly. In Mark 14, the king is anointed, not by the highest priest or in front of the largest army, but by a sinful woman relaxing after dinner. If you keep reading in Mark chapter 15, you see this king of coronation, not with a crown of jewels, but with a crown of thorns, and not on a throne made of gold, but one made of wood with splinters and nails. The cross is the planted flag of God's kingdom. And it's where citizens of that kingdom pledge their allegiance and receive the grace required to live in this kingdom. This morning, Mark has given us two pictures of citizenship, two kinds of disciples. Remember, Jesus is the ultimate point. He's the point of this passage. He's the point of this sermon. If you left, I, I would only want you to remember one thing. I want you to remember everything. But if you could only remember one thing, I would want you to know that Jesus is the anointed king over all creation, especially for the broken, 
heard it. But Mark has given us this truth. He's painted us this picture of Jesus. And then gives us these other characters as a way to respond. He's shown us true disciples who love and hold nothing back for their king. Or phony disciples, selfish sellouts who are blind to the reality of who Jesus is. Marx presented us with these clear categories for how to respond to King Jesus. Are we going to break open the flask, pour everything out for our crucified and risen king? Or will we grumble and deflect from what Jesus is calling us to? Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word this morning. You've given us uh, these words, this story, so that we can know you and trust you and follow you. Father, would we see your son clearly for who he is this morning, King Jesus? Would you melt our hearts? Um, would you make us devoted disciples like the woman we read about today? Now we cry out that your kingdom would come in Colombia as it is in heaven. And that you transform the people of Karish Church, the people of our city. God, be with us the rest of this morning as we worship together. Um, would, you, can, would you grant us unity around the table? as we remember Jesus and what he's done for us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.